This is Scripture on Creation with Dr. Ben Scripture. With a Master of Divinity, a Ph.D. in Biochemistry, and over 30 years of experience studying and teaching about creation, he is well-equipped to discuss biblical and scientific perspectives on creation, science, and intelligent design. This and past programs are also available as a free podcast, so you can listen anytime. And now, here is Scripture on Creation. Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, you've received several questions from listeners recently, and in today's program, you want to respond to some of them. Yes, Scott. You know, I've really been encouraged lately by all the letters we're receiving. So go ahead and read the first one. Okay, this question is from Nick Wills in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he writes, Hello, I am 14 years old. I was reading Genesis 3 and became confused about why God didn't want Adam and Eve to be like him. Why did he not want Adam and Eve to know the difference between good and evil? Thanks for your time. Well, first of all, Scott, isn't that a great question? It is. It's wonderful to know there are 14-year-old young men out there that are that thoughtful. And to answer Nick's question, let's first read the verses relevant to his question. They're in Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die." Now, in order to understand what God's intention was for Adam and Eve, I think we need to understand the meaning of the word know or knowledge used in the description of that tree God called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve would have understood the difference between right and wrong. They knew in a head knowledge way, for example, it was right to do what God said and wrong to disobey him. As related to the fruit, for example. Yeah, don't eat the fruit. That's the only commandment that God gave them. (laughs) But the sense of knowing that God wanted them to avoid was an experiential knowledge. There's a big difference between knowing about something and knowing something as a result of doing it or experiencing it. If you've ever read in the King James Bible, where in Genesis 4 it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived, well, that Hebrew word translated knew is the root word for the word knowledge. There in that phrase, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it is a very common word. It's translated at least 60 different ways and occurs about a thousand times in the Old Testament. Its general sense of meaning is more than just knowing about something. So with respect to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God did not want Adam and Eve to know or we could say, understand evil by experiencing it. He warned them what would happen, but he gave them the choice to obey or not. But in the simple act of eating from the tree, he told them not to eat. They would be disobeying God. In other words, they would know, they would experience evil because they committed an act of sin. It was so tragic. It changed everything. It changed their relationship with their creator, with one another. It changed them. And it was a change God did not want them to experience. So I hope that helps, Nick. It's not that God didn't want Adam and Eve to understand the difference between good and evil. He did not want them to experience the difference. 
You know, Dr. Scripture, I'm not a parent, but it seems to me that any parent would be able to easily identify with what God wanted for Adam and Eve. One of the difficult things parents go through in raising their children is seeing them experience the consequences of sin, whether it's because of the child's own wrongdoing or the result of some other person's sin. Yeah, we, especially as parents, and you know, it's not just believing parents, Christian parents, all parents want to protect their kids from the effects of sin, even though they might not even call it sin in some respects. But because of what Adam and Eve did way back in the beginning, we all must bear the effects of their choice. (laughs) But of course, it's not all just somebody else's fault. It's our own sinful choices as well that so often cause pain and shame and frustration. Okay, well, let's go on to our next question, which is a series of questions, actually. This is an email from Ward Kelly in Monroe, Georgia, and he writes, Hello, Dr. Scripture. I just found you a few months ago and love to listen to the show online. Could you speak about artifacts found from what appears to be the antediluvian world? What about geographic locations from that era? What do we know about the Tigris and Euphrates rivers? Do they flow where they did before the flood? I have also read some creation theories concerning rapid continental drift. How does that affect locating antediluvian geography? (laughs) Well, Ward, that kind of question is near and dear Mm -hmm. to my heart. One of the things I'm continually reminding people of is the distinction we must always make between the pre- and post-flood world. And by the way, the word he used, antediluvian, means pre-flood. Thus, anything after the flood would be also referred to as post-diluvian. So anti and post-diluvian, that's pre- and post-flood. And so what Ward is getting at is, he too, I think, recognizes that the world would really, really be different after the flood. And so what parts of it do we see today that would be left over from what the world looked like before the flood? And my simple answer to that would be, Basically, nothing. It's just too bad. Yeah. Although, you know, when you think about it, the rainbow, we did a whole series Mm, about that. We wouldn't have seen that. And then the beauty of the skyscraper mountains with the snow tops and all that. I tend to think that we wouldn't have seen that before the flood either. So there are some things Mm -hmm. that are really, really beautiful as a result of the changes in the earth after the flood. But for the most part, I agree, Scott, it's really a shame. We can't really see things. At least I don't think we see anything now that existed before the the flood. And a good example are those rivers that he actually mentioned. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, talking about those rivers, actually four of them that flowed out of the Garden of Eden from one source. And two of them that are mentioned are the Tigris and Euphrates. And of course, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers exist today over in Mesopotamia, over in the Middle East. When he asks, do those rivers flow where they did before the flood? I would say almost for certain, no. Those rivers are completely gone, those that were coming out of the Garden of Eden. I think the Garden of Eden is completely gone. And so what are the Tigris and Euphrates rivers of the day? Well, what is New York? New York is a remembrance of York over in England. And so what are the Tigris and Euphrates rivers? They are rivers that the people post-flood, remembering the rivers that flowed out of Eden, they named them after those rivers. 
And so I think basically all the geographic locations that we would identify today don't really have anything to do with the geographic locations pre-flood. So as he mentioned, the proposals of rapid continental drift, I don't even think the continents as they appear today existed before the flood. I do tend to think that there was one huge continent And with the breakup of that continent, when God caused the great fountains of the deep to burst open, the great landmass, often referred to as Pangaea, split apart. And what we see today now are simply chunks of what was once one beautiful and fairly flat, huge continent before the flood. And so one other thing related to that, oftentimes there'll be proposals that Atlantis, you know, this lost city, some sunken city is actually something from pre-flood. I don't even know that we've ever really found an Atlantis, but I don't think that those kinds of things that we find below sea levels, remnants of cities or so forth are anything that was pre-flood. I think those are cities that have gone below sea level since the flood. Well, we have time for one more question. This is a question related to faith in general, more than a question related to creation, Dr. Scripture. But it is a very poignant question that you definitely wanted to address on the program. Mm -hmm. It's from Mark Mackey. We don't know where he's from, but here's his question. Good morning, sir. I'm doing a study on faith and using Noah and Abraham as prime examples. Great examples. Yes, they had great faith taking God at his word. I'm trying to see how this can relate to our faith so many years later. We are asked to have the same faith, maybe not to build an ark or sacrifice our only son, but to take God at his word. Would you be able to give me some direction on how we, in this modern world of I must see it to believe it, can trust God as Abraham or Noah or the many more listed in Scripture did? I am trying to encourage a small group study to step out and trust God more, taking him at his word. Thank you for your time and input, Mark Mackey. Well, first of all, I think that's a great question, and I encourage Mark to continue to work with those young people. But, you know, we all need to continue to grow in our trust and step out in faith. And one of the things with respect to his question I think is important to consider is that there is more than one type of response in faith as we trust God. What I mean by that, let's use the example of Abram. In Genesis chapter 15, which is a crucial passage on saving faith, it's quoted three different places in the New Testament as an example of what it means to believe and have God reckon that righteousness of Christ to us. Abram there basically is simply trusting God's word in his heart. He doesn't do anything. And that's why it's such an important example of saving faith. Saving faith does not require us doing anything in the sense that, okay, well, I, I got to do this or that to prove to God that I believe. You know, God it's resting knows, in the Lord. Yeah, God knows our heart. In that example, Abram is having a hard time believing God's word when he's telling him he's going to have a baby and, you know, going to have a child when he's so old. And this is what God does. In Genesis 15, 5, it says, and he took him, that is, God takes Abram outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then this crucial response of Abram, then Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
So there, you know, Abram didn't do anything. He trusted the Lord and God could see that faith in his heart. But how about these other examples of faith that Abram and Noah exhibited? Mark mentioned that we aren't expected to kill our only son. Well, in the case of Abram, though, God told him to go kill Isaac, go slay Isaac, and Abraham was willing to do it. He was ready to do it. In other words, he believed God, and it was demonstrated by he was simply going to do what God told him to do. And then how about Noah? What did Noah do? God told him to build an ark. And if that isn't the best example of faith without works is dead, I don't know (laughs) what is. Because if Noah hadn't trusted God, believed God, and built the ark, well, he would have been dead along with everybody else. Both of those examples are cited in the Hebrews faith chapter. Exactly. And so here are examples of trust where they simply did what God told them to do. That, I think, is the kind of trust. That's the kind of faith that we need to focus on in our Christian lives. Not so much this idea of, well, I believe God will do something because he said he would do it in the word. Now, obviously, please don't think that I don't say that that is important. But the kind of trust that I think we need to be exhibiting in our lives is when God tells us to do something, do it. Like Abram, he left his family, he left his country. Noah, he built the ark. Abram was willing, and he almost did, except God stopped him, to put his son to death. That's the kind of faith that we need to have in our Christian life. So, you know, that phrase, it's not so popular anymore, but Nike had that phrase, just do it. The Bible makes it clear that we are not to test the Lord by sinning to see what he'll do when we sin, but it does invite us in a sense to test his faithfulness by obeying him and then see his response. I want to conclude by reading a verse that is talking about giving, but I think the principle applies to every single commandment that the Lord God has given us. It's in Malachi 3.10. Listen to what the Lord says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. What the Lord is basically saying here is, just do it, and your faith will be rewarded. It's very similar to what he says in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's almost as though God is encouraging us to take a taste test, like a (laughs) test drive. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the program. If you would like to hear this or past episodes of the program, listen to them on our podcast, Scripture on Creation. You can subscribe for free or listen on our website, and you can learn more about our ministry on the website, scriptureoncreation.org. Scripture on Creation is a listener-supported ministry, and your gifts and prayers are greatly appreciated. If you have comments or questions you'd like Dr. Scripture to address, you can contact him by sending an email to scripture at scriptureoncreation.org or call 574-551-1524.